Well, over the last two weekends, we've covered Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14, both of which tell us that God has given real authority to civil government. If you're uh, picking up with us today, this is the first sermon you're hearing in this series. We've been looking at passages in the New Testament that tell us how we are to relate to government and also how they are to relate to us. Those texts that I just cited are the two famous submit-to-government texts of the New Testament. And we saw from those texts that God has given the state that authority for a purpose, to punish evil and to protect or praise good. Furthermore, we saw that the ruler may excise taxes from his citizens in order to accomplish all of those things. But I spent considerable time in the past couple of weeks trying to show you from those texts that state government has not been given authority by God to operate beyond those prescribed functions. And I acknowledge, as I closed last week, that that left us with a looming question. The question is, what should we do when civil authorities do attempt to operate beyond those prescribed functions? What should we do when civil authorities drift out of their lane? Now, I grew up in Christian churches, and so I've heard sermons my entire life. I've listened to thousands of sermons. But upon review in this last week as I was preparing for this weekend, I realized that I have never sat through a biblical exposition on what God teaches us about government and the relationship between citizens and state, if you have, then count yourself blessed, assuming that it was, in fact, biblically faithful. But the elders of this church consider it timely and prudent to help give you a sound foundation on this topic. That's why we actually planned to do this uh, last year as we were putting together our sermon plan for 2020. I'm willing to spend some significant time on this because I strongly suspect that we need sharpening on this particular topic. We've enjoyed, as American Christians, a relative peace with our civil authorities for so long that this part of our doctrine has atrophied. I think it would be helpful for all of us to look once again at what the Bible says about government, about citizens and state and a right relationship there. You know, as believers, we have been granted the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation until we acquire possession of it. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer is teach that believer what is true. And that means that we often intuit how to respond to things even before we have a fully formed doctrinal position on that particular topic. I want to illustrate that here for you. Imagine sometime in this next week, a mobster were to approach you like a character out of one of the Godfather movies. And imagine that he claims that he is the rightful king of the street. And he strongly suggests that you pay him for your protection. Here's the question. Are you obligated by God to obey him? Even if he claimed authority in your community, Even if he were to tell you that he is authorized to excise tax from your wallet, are you obligated by God to obey the crime lord, the gangster, 
the mugger. I'm betting that without a verse that comes to mind, without a passage, chapter and verse, you know right now the answer to that is no. And you'd be correct. You are not obligated by God to obey that mugger. Now, you may, of course, in the moment, choose to comply out of concern for your life, right? You may do the math and say, paper in my wallet isn't worth what might happen if I don't give it. But the question is about obligation. And I suspect that you know that we are not obligated to submit to illegitimate authority. I think there's a reason that you know that. And I think the reason is that because it's written into the code, the law of God, that's even put on our hearts. This morning, I want to take a look at what constitutes legitimate civil authority. That's what we're going to spend a little bit of time on today. Simply put, what makes a king? How do you know if somebody is a legitimate authority that God has commanded to obey or not? Now, I've been looking forward to getting to the sermon we're getting to next week, but it became prudent in the planning that we would first start with what makes a king, what, what is a legitimate authority, so that we could see things in the appropriate steps before we get to how we should disobey. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go back to the Old Testament. We've been in the New Testament. We're going to go into the Old Testament. We're going to go back to a time when the people of God are first formed into a nation and are preparing to head into the promised land. So we're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and go there. Um, read along with me, if you will. And I'm going to put those verses up here, as I typically do when we walk through them again. So you can just watch the screens. Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. And here's what we're going to do. My hope is to help answer that question for you. What makes an authority legitimate? What makes a king? What was God's design when he used Israel as an image, a picture of how he were to lead, we're going to take a look at that and we're going to ask a whole bunch of questions of these verses, try to get clarity about what it meant for the people then and how those things may still apply to us today. So I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, and then we're going to go, I'm going to pray and then go back through those verses again. Follow along with me if, if you will. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to this passage in your word, we pray for clarity and understanding. Help us to see what it meant to the first audience, and help, it see, help us see what it means for us today. We, we need your help, Lord, perhaps more than in many other topics. 
I do believe that we have atrophied in this thinking collectively as American Christians, and we need your help to strengthen, bolster for us our understanding of what your intention has been for a king, for a ruler, an emperor, that you have rightly set over us, that we may submit to that king and that we may honor you in so doing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting again in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Here, God foretells what will happen in Israel's future. Israel is about to enter into the promised land at this point. And while they are, while they will not yet in the entrance into the land have a national king, at least not for a while, they are being prepared for that. In this period of time, there are some who will operate as regional rulers. They're typically called judges, and they're recorded in the book of that same name. You might think of names like Deborah and Barak, uh, Gideon, Samson. Those were regional rulers during that period of time called the time of the judges. Some are even referred to as king, like Abimelech. But the nation of Israel will not be united under a singular ruler for another 400 years. What God is telling the people through Moses is that when that day comes and the people cry out for an earthly king to rule them, he will permit them to do so. That's why he says, you may indeed set a king over you. And we're going to get to that story at a later time. But for now, let's just notice what God prescribes regarding that future king. The first thing he says about that king is that he will be a king that the Lord your God will choose. First and foremost, he must be chosen by God. The people are required to wait until God provides a king for them. When we get to that point in Israel's history, we will see that the people will cry out to Samuel, the prophet at that time. He'll cry out to Samuel for a king. But they do indeed wait until after God offers one up for them. In other words, the Israelites are not authorized to appoint a king unless he has first been appointed by God. In fact, in Israel's future, much later than this text, they will violate this foundational commandment. And God will judge them for that transgression. I'll read for you Hosea chapter 8, verse 4. This is an indictment from God on the Israelites. He says, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. So we should not see the appointment of every king as a gracious blessing from God. Nor should we think that every ruler chosen by people has God's approval. And this stands true for us today. The American people may vote in a president that is not approved by God. But this should not be meant to understand that God has no sovereign control over who sits in the seat of a ruler. When you were with me in Romans 13, if you had followed along the last couple of weeks, you'll know that that passage begins with this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So God designed the institution of government, and he ordains who will sit in authority in the civil sphere. And that works not only for those in the days of the Israelite kingship, 
but even those who were outside the nation of Israel. During the days of the prophet Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar was Babylonian. And as he was a fool, thinking that he had more control than God had actually given him, he was humbled by God and driven into the wilderness for seven years. And this is what Daniel says about him, that he will stay in the wilderness until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Every ruler who sits in the seat of civil authority has been chosen by God for that seat, either as a gracious blessing when he's a righteous king or as an act of judgment when it is a wicked king. This November, in the United States, we will get the president that God chooses either as a blessing or as a judgment on our nation. What else does it say? He must be one from among your brothers. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now, why do you think that God was concerned that the people not appoint a foreigner to rule over Israel? Because he had promised their forefathers that there would be one in the line of Abraham through whom he would save his people. It was not going to be through a foreigner. It was going to be through a Jew, through a Hebrew, through one in the line of Abraham. In fact, later, God will establish a covenant with King David where he will promise that this Messiah of Israel, who's promised to come, would come through not only Abraham's line, but specifically through David's line. He would be a son of David. And that he would be an eternal king whose kingdom would never fail. Does that sound like anyone? That's Jesus. This being the case, I do not think that this needs to be seen as an obligation in all nations today. But for the line of the Messiah to be established and preserved, it was necessary that the king of Israel should not be a foreigner. It had to come through the line of promise, the king. But look what he says here next. He's one from among your brothers that you shall set as king over you. You shall set. You shall set as king over you. He will not just assert that authority on his own. He will not wake up after hearing a dream you shall set him as king over you. Four times in these two verses, God uses language like this. This establishes for us yet another prerequisite for a ruler. First, chosen by God. Second, he must be recognized and established by the people. God has designed that rulers govern at the consent of the governed. Hear that. God has designed that rulers govern at the consent of the governed. This means that the collective citizenry has the authority to establish one ruler in favor of another. And it also means that a king does not become a king until there has been a coronation ceremony in which he is acknowledged by the people as their leader. I want you to follow me on this here. I'm going to give you a Bible example. Exhibit A, King David and his inauguration. If you're not familiar with that story, let me give you a quick lesson on this one. Saul was the first king of Israel united together. In fact, he's the one about whom this text is actually written. But Saul dishonors God by keeping the spoils of war with the Amalekites rather than destroying them as God had commanded. So God sends the prophet Samuel to tell Saul that he has been effectively fired from his job as king. And this is what 
Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to him, Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So Saul's disobedience led to God removing the kingdom out of his authority. After this, God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to find and anoint the next rightful king of Israel. Samuel finds the shepherd boy, David. He's the youngest of seven sons of Jesse. And besides being handsome, there was nothing that would have identified him as a royalty. But God tells Samuel that this boy is the one whom he has chosen to lead Israel. And this is what it says after he finds David. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. He pours oil in the ceremony of anointing over David's head. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, if you were to read the very next verse, I could have put it up here, verse 14 right here. What you'll see is that it says that God takes his spirit from Saul and sends him a tormenting spirit instead. So, so what effectively happens is God tells Saul through Samuel, I am tearing the kingdom away from you this very day and giving it to your neighbor. And then he gives it to David by anointing on the same time that he removes the spirit from Saul in that leadership role. So two things have happened in these verses. God has taken the kingdom from Saul and second, God has given it to David. So here's the question. At this point, who is the king of Israel? Saul. Saul is the king of Israel. So how does that work? Well, it works exactly as I was just explaining from Deuteronomy 17. A king does not become a king until he is acknowledged by the people as their leader. He must be recognized and established. In fact, it was only Samuel, David, and his brothers that even knew about the anointing at this time. People were not held accountable to obey David when they didn't even know. And that's what we see as the Bible story continues. Years will go by before Saul dies, and the people of Judah make David their king. And even then, it will be seven more years before David becomes the king over the rest of Israel. I want to read from you 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 real quick. This is the point after David has been acknowledged as the king of Judah. That's the southern area, of, of uh, the southern tribe of Judah. Uh, that's the southern part below Israel. He's about to be coronated and inaugurated as the king of Israel. And this is what it says. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. And said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Are you seeing that? A ruler must be established by the people. David is not the king of Israel until they acknowledge in a covenant that he makes with them. This is actually why after David is anointed and he goes into the wilderness to run from Saul's wicked laws, 
Saul is chasing David to kill David. David refuses to extend his hand against Saul. Why? Because he's the king. I may not extend my hand against the Lord's anointed. David even has a man executed for speaking treasonously and claiming that he killed Saul. Because David acknowledged that even after he was anointed, Saul was king until David was coronated, until he was established. I'm reading a book right now called Vindice Contra Tyrannos. It was written in 1579 in Latin and French. The English title of that book is A Defense of Liberty Against Tyrants. The author's name is Junius Brutus, but we think historically it's probably a handful of other Christian guys who are all putting these works together. Because at this time in history in France, the French Catholics were killing the Protestants in France in the droves. Tens of thousands were even being massacred because they didn't follow the Pope. And so Christians were hard-pressed to answer the question, how are we to obey the law when the law tells us to bow to a Pope that we don't think is in the Bible? really incredible book. The author writes this, speaking of King David in this exact context. So then he is anointed first by the prophet at the commandment of God as a token that he was chosen. Secondly, by the commandment of the people when he was established king. And that to the end, that kings may always remember that it is from God, but by the people and for the people's sake that they do reign. Until a ruler is recognized by the citizens, he is not counted as their ruler. You don't obey that mob boss. But if that mob boss is elected as the president, then you submit. You get that? The collective recognition of the citizenry was a prerequisite for ruling, ru rulership. Now, you may be putting this together right now that this also means that the collective citizenry has the authority to reject one ruler in favor of another. Now, you don't learn this stuff in Sunday school, typically. So let me make something very clear here and why it is I'm using this language. Critical note is that it is not any random individual that can make this claim. So this is why Christians hardcore reject this hashtag not my president junk. Done. That is folly. We don't just gather in our group of 10s and 20s and say, we refuse to acknowledge right rulership. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what the Bible confirms. But it is the collective citizenry, the corporate body of the people in unity that is needed to recognize right rulership. We actually have an example of this playing out in history as well. I just told you about King David. King David's son will be King Solomon. And Solomon's son and successor will be Rehoboam. Now, God had known before Rehoboam came into power that he was going to be a foolish, wicked young king. And so he already, prior to Rehoboam taking power, anointed another man named Jeroboam to take control of half of the kingdom. And Jeroboam, fearing what Rehoboam would do to him, runs off and flees to Egypt. He'll come back later into the story. But Rehoboam, after Solomon dies, takes control. He's like, okay, it's my job to be in power now. He's not yet been coronated. Solomon has died. They're getting ready to inaugurate Rehoboam as the next king. He's not yet king because he hasn't had that ceremony. And Rehoboam stands before the people and the people cry out to him and say, are you going to 
excise harsh tax like your father did? Are you going to take property from us? Are you going to make us into laborers like your dad did with a heavy hand? If you remember the story, Rehoboam goes and gets some counsel from some very foolish friends. He rejects the wise counsel from the older scribes and those he should have listened to. And he comes back to the people and before them, he says to them, no, you better submit. I'm going to be the king and I'm going to make it harder on you than my dad did. That's quite literally what he says to them. And what do the people do? They say, you are not our king. We're getting another one. And who's the other one? I already told you, one of the prerequisites. He had to be chosen by God. Jeroboam was chosen by God. And this is what it says in 1 Kings 12, 20. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. We, as a concerted body of citizens, have been granted by God the authority to both establish and depose kings. Again, not individually, but collectively. We, the people, have the authority together to set a king over us, just as this text says. Here is why this is so important for us to understand and acknowledge today, in our day now. Israel, in this time, was a constitutional monarchy. If you were you're to like study, what, what form of government did Israel have? A constitutional monarchy. Monarchy is a mono, singular, RK ruler. One ruler, king. Constitutional means that there were laws written. So there was a king and there was a written law. That's what a constitutional monarchy is. But even in that day, kings and queens, princes and princesses, the king was not given absolute authority. God has never authorized any form of government where a king or ruling class has unlimited authority. And this agrees with what we've been seeing in the New Testament text, hasn't it? That there have been limitations specified for the ruling authorities. The civil authorities may not step outside their bounds. They are to punish what is evil and to protect what is good. That's their job. And they can excise tax to pay for that, to make it happen. That's their responsibility. The New Testament confirms that there are limitations on the king. His authority is not absolute. This means that as Christians, we should be opposed to any form of government that seeks to assert control over its citizens without their prior consent. We have a Bible reason why we reject cultural Marxism, communism, full-blooded anarchy, even pure democracy, we have reasons, Bible reasons, why we reject those as forms of government. Not just because, ah, oh, it doesn't make sense to me, I don't really feel familiar with it. No, the Bible does not authorize a ruling individual or class to have absolute authority. But must be granted that authority first by God and the sword handed to him by the people. Additionally, it means that the responsibility for right governing is never entirely removed from the people. Just as the Israelites in the Old Testament were held accountable by God for following their leaders into sin, we will be held accountable for following our modern governors and presidents into sin. No earthly ruler has absolute authority. And we're going to see this more and more as we continue in this text today. I, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you this because there are Christians today who think that this is okay. There are Christians today who go, well, the, there was a king. 
Well, you have to submit to the government. Read the whole text. The word of God does not ever approve of unlimited authority in the hands of man. And we're going to see that as it continues in the laws concerning kings, that God has prescribed limits for his rule. Look at the next portion of our text, Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 and 17. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. These verses tell us three things that a king is not authorized to do. The first, acquiring many horses. So what is the meaning of the limit on acquiring horses? A handful of passages I could have pulled upon, but Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1, I think gives us the greatest help. Read this with me, if you will. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. In the Bible, horses are weapons. You don't eat horses. You train them. You train them for battle. Now, this is the only passage that I have found in the Bible where God endorses restrictions on the ownership of weapons. And you'll notice those restrictions are placed upon the king and not the people. So if you were looking throughout the Bible for verses about gun control, this is what you get. The kingdom of God, of course, will never be advanced by weapons made by men. Christians will be more likely to lay our lives down for the spread of the kingdom than to pick up arms to defend it. But nowhere does God approve of civil authorities limiting the ownership of private weapons. It is not the people, but the king, whose right to keep and bear arms must be infringed. So a person may come up with a whole host of reasons as to why they don't want their neighbor to own an arsenal, but would rather those weapons be under the control of the state. But you won't get any help from the Bible in that crusade. And the list of the restrictions on the king continues. So there are three things in here. Look what, look what the list continues to say. No, no multiplication of horses. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess of silver and gold. The king may not acquire in excess horses, women, and riches. And for anyone who's keeping track, that's power, sex, and money. If you observe a king, a ruler in civil leadership, increasing in these areas, take note, something's wrong. This has never been the design. I don't know about you. All, all my life, I grew up like, thinking about kings and princes, and, you know, the, the stories of the, the medieval days and watching movies about this. And I, I just always had it in my mind, probably like many American youths did, the, the king days. These are the days where they were authorized to take all the money and women and power and, and weapons that they wanted. Not according to the Bible. You may be very well aware that King Solomon breaks every one of these commands, egregiously so. In fact, this is like a, a, list, a listed indictment against King Solomon, David's son. If you were to count what it is that King Solomon amassed, he's not supposed to acquire many horses. You know how many horses that the Bible says he acquired? 40,000 stalls worth of horses. And you know where he got them? Egypt. How about his, his wives? Do you know how many wives the Bible says Solomon had? 700. 
And add on top of that 300 concubines. That's like one of those texts when you get through the Bible, you're like, wait, that, there's no way. Atrocious and egregious, wicked. It says that during the days of King Solomon, he, he covered everything in gold, man. Everything covered in gold. There was so much gold, so much silver flowing, that it says in the text that silver was as dust in the days of King Solomon. There was so much. And it wasn't just to the public treasury. That would actually be different because it says for himself. For prosperity to a nation to come could be a blessing, but it was for himself. He got wealthy and his son refused to let go of that. This, this, this means that anyone who hears the promise given to King David in the line of King David, one of his sons will be this eternal king seated on the throne forever. And they're watching this play out before their very eyes and they see King Solomon come to power, wisest man who's ever lived. A, a time of prosperity, a time of great peace from all the enemies around. And what do they see him do? Exactly what the law prohibits the king to do. That person knows this one is not the Messiah. This one is not our rightful, ultimate, final king. We must have to wait a little longer. Continuing verse 18 through 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above the brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The king is to write for himself a copy of the law, the book of Deuteronomy, and he was to keep it with him and read it daily. It was a command of him. You know, you, know, you couldn't just hit copy. You couldn't just go out and buy another one off of the, of the you know, Borders or Barnes and Noble or something, or order on Amazon. He actually had to write this out. And, and you'll notice in the text, he had to write it out at the direction of the approval of the Levitical priest. See that? What does that mean? That means that it's a check and balance prescribed by God to ensure that the king was not writing his own version of the law. So when he's writing his own law, there's somebody else there with the scroll going, whoa, 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 whoa. No, it says, don't, don't multiply your wives. Right? So he was, he was to be checked. It's under their approval. They didn't invent the law. The law was already given to them. By the time they're doing it, they're just making sure that he's standing by what the law had always been. If a king does not abide by the word of God and submit to it, read it daily, submit to that, follow that. What happens to him? This text says his heart will be lifted above his brothers. Does that sound familiar? Think of himself as above the law, as above all the little peons beneath him, the, the deplorables in the flyover states kind of stuff. What else? He'll be found disobedient to God. It'll cause him to not fear God, but to turn to the right hand or the left. He'll go he'll do whatever he wants to do. Just like, just like Isaiah says, woe to those who trade good for evil and evil for good, who invent their own versions of what's right and wrong. And eventually, he will lose his kingdom. What happens? So that he may continue long. If he doesn't do this, he will not continue long in his kingdom. He and his children in Israel. So the lineage of that king will not be 
forever established. And that does happen throughout Israel's history. Even when a wicked king makes it to the end of his life, God pronounces judgment that will come on his sons and their wickedness because they continue in the ways of their wicked father. And that's absolutely what happens. God will hold every king accountable to his law, to his word. They do not have authority to determine what is good or evil but to submit to what God has determined to be good and evil and to abide by that divine determination in their execution of the law. If you were here with us two weeks ago, made that very clear. Never in all of sacred scripture do we get so much as a hint that a king at any authority has the right to determine what is good and evil. God has already done that. It's the job of the one in right authority to administer in what God has already established. And if he doesn't do it, he will eventually lose his kingdom. I want you to understand this. Perfection is the demand. The only kingdom, the only kingdom that will last forever is the one with a perfect king. And contrary to all other kings that have come before him, he has absolute authority. Right now, this very day. And yes, I'm speaking of King Jesus the ultimate ruler. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto him. And just as God has chosen for him to be there, he is the only one different than the other kings who is not required and waiting for us to acknowledge that he is the lawful king in order for him to rule. But because of his perfections, we must all acknowledge who he is even today or we will die in our sins. It is our charge to recognize him as the rightful king and to submit to his rule in everything. This is why we proclaim the gospel to all people, all nations. You and I are sinners. We have broken the law of God and we are under his just judgment. And the rightful king of kings will bring judgment. And unless we repent of that sin and turn in faith to him, we will die and be separated from God forever in hell. The Bible tells us that God demonstrated his great love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, the perfect king, goes to the cross, dies for the sins of all those who ever believe. And that's why we share this to every person, king to peasant. And the king doesn't get out of this one because he's in authority, because he's an absolute monarch. The king himself must submit. If you haven't submitted today, let this be the call. Let this be the gospel call. Nobody will evade judgment on this day apart from Christ. All of us will fall under his right judgment. Believe on him. Foundational question. Which is higher in authority, the king or the law? The ruler or the laws according to which he is to rule? I hope it's been so evident by not only this Old Testament passage, but also our New Testament ones, that the answer, as we've seen, is that the law is undeniably higher in authority. But you have to realize that there are some people who argue that as long as the authority is legitimately ordained, that is, they have been appointed by God and they've recognized by the people, those who are subordinate are obligated by God to obey. So to say it more simply, there are people who believe that we must obey the king even if the king commands us to sin. 
The view that civil authorities are to be unconditionally obeyed has been held by many people in history, and not surprisingly, it is most commonly held by tyrants. Last week, I read through a list of rulers in the Bible who assumed their power so vast that they even claimed to have equal or greater authority than God himself, some even demanding to be worshipped. But this error is not exclusive to the times and places recorded in the Bible. All throughout history, even much later in history, we see this play out. During the time of the Protestant Reformation, King James of Scotland, the same King James who commissioned the translation of the Bible, which bears his name, developed the doctrine of the divine right of kings, which was an attempt to theologically defend near limitless power of the king. Those who hold this view believe that a king's authority is greater than any written law. And therefore, those subordinate to him are obligated by God to obey the king even when they are commanded to sin. So if the king says, bow to Baal, they are to bow to Baal. And they argue that the king's authority is absolute and that God will hold the king accountable for anything sinful that he commands. But it is still God's will that the people should obey Not only does this view undermine the sacrifices of so many Christian martyrs throughout history, it is patently unbiblical. When confronted by the Jewish leaders about preaching the gospel, Peter and the other apostles famously said, we must obey God rather than men, making it crystal clear that when men in power presume to contradict God, we are obligated, not permitted, obligated to disobey And this was not an innovation in the days of the apostles, nor did it require unique apostolic authority. For as long as there have been legitimate civil authorities, people have had to legitimately disobey them. So in order to have a fully formed biblical view of civil government and its God-designed limitations, it will be incredibly helpful for you to become familiar with the various passages in the Bibles that give us examples of this very thing. I'll just give you just, just a few of the clearer ones today. Back to the days of the Exodus, the Israelite midwives under Pharaoh had been commanded to kill all the male children who were born to the Israelite women. Exodus 1.17 says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And God dealt well with these women. He rewarded them for their civil disobedience by blessing them with families of their own. Simply put, God approved of their civil disobedience. Fast forward to the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were in captivity from Jerusalem. They were now living under the charge of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And they were were in the high house. They lived in the castle. They lived amongst the, the princes and the nobles. And they were commanded, as well as the rest of the nation, that they were to bow to an idol, a golden statue, whenever they heard music. And they refused. And this is the charge laid against them from The wicked magistrates in Daniel 3. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And God approves of their civil disobedience and even rescues them out of the fiery furnace. Again, later in that same book, we see Daniel, who prays in a window regularly to God three times, finds himself in a similar conundrum where the civil magistrates trick the king into making a law, King Darius. And the law is that for this month, anyone wants to pray has to pray to the king and not to their God. 
This is what it says in Daniel 6.10. When Daniel knew that the documents had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. That's the same Daniel who goes to the lion's den and God protects him there. Again, approving of his civil disobedience. Fast forward to the time of Jesus' birth. The Magi, they come from the east. They show up at Herod's palace where they inquire about when the Messiah and where the Messiah should be born. After pointing them to Bethlehem, Herod commands the Magi to return to him and tell him where he could find the newborn king. But the Magi were warned in a dream to not obey Herod. So they did not return to him. They went home another way. Literally, God sends an angel in a dream to tell them to disobey that civil authority. Jesus even warns his disciples that they will be turned over to kings. And on what grounds? On the grounds that they are breaking civil laws. Matthew 10 says this, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. To be a disciple of Jesus may make one subject to capital punishment, which is the consequence for breaking civil laws. And this has proven true millions of times over in the centuries. History is riddled with faithful martyrs who knew that to die for Christ is better than life. And what was the charge that was leveled against those Christians? Precious few were given so pure a charge as because they loved Jesus. The overwhelming majority of Christian martyrs in history were put to death not on the charge that they claimed Christ, but on the charge that they were enemies of the state. That's what's on their tombstone. That's what's on those mass graves. We ought not fear that branding. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus tells us in a promise, because they hated me, they will hate you. Few things have been more foolish to my observation in the past couple of months to see Christians looking at the world and saying, whatever they tell me to do, I'll do. And that will be loving to them. What? Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Of course they're going to hate you and they're going to pick arbitrary things to hate you for. They're not even going to know how to say, we hate you because of your Jesus. They won't even know how to say it. We hate you because you won't comply, because you won't put your fist in the air, because you won't do what we've demanded that you do. That's what it's going to be about. It always comes to blows like that in history. And Christians get put in the grave with the charge being enemy of the state. Mark 8.35, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Jesus isn't talking about car accidents. He's talking about martyrdom. He's talking about decisions that people make that would either keep them out of the death sentence or put them into it. The Bible anticipates that those who love the gospel must be prepared to give their lives. The 
The Bible is incredibly clear that whenever a ruler commands us to act contrary to God, even when that ruler, even when that ruler is a legitimately appointed ruler of the people, we must resist that rule and obey God rather than men. There are many more questions we have to ask about this. I hope that it won't be hard for me to convince you that you should obey God even when the government commands you to do opposite. I hope that's not hard to convince you. But what about if the laws are arbitrary? What if the king, because he likes the color blue, commands you to wear blue to worship on Sunday? Will you do it? What if he commands you to not read any books from 8 to 10 p.m.? On Monday night, you won't find verses that tell you you have to do those things. Should you do it? These are the things that Christians have to face and think about and manage right now. Because sometimes it feels gray. But this is a time we need to do it. Because many of the most powerful people and institutions in our land have been progressively revealing just how hostile they are to the Christian faith. They hate Christians. And do you know why they hate us? Because we will not comply. We will peaceably die before we comply. I believe that we have reached a point at which we as Christians must hold the line in this current culture war. I imagine a church building on a hill and at the base of the hill is a big field. of Culture war has been waging for decades. And over time, you know, you know it, that line, that battle line, has been slowly losing ground. And it's been backing itself up to the church. And I, I, I think that by the time we've gotten to 2020, bullets are starting to hit that building. And Christians in the church are waking up to it. We weren't ignorant, were we? Weren't we watching the assault on every institution in our culture? Have we not watched it play out as they leveled lies against our children in schools and in movies and in every possible way that they have to influence people? We've watched it. We've seen it take place. And many will say, well, shouldn't the Christians have been engaged out there? Perhaps, yeah. Maybe we should have been engaged when the battlefield was still way out there and we could see it on the horizon. But better late than never. Because when bullets finally hit the church building and people are saying, where else are we going to go? The church is the last stand. Do you know what's after the church? Your home. Your house. That's what's next. And throughout history, it's been Christians gathered together and say, no more. We don't believe your lies. None of them. Zero of your lies do we believe anymore. None. And we will not comply. And Christians will bicker. And argue, well, that, that is, that's kind of an arbitrary. Should you really make that the line? Is masks, social distancing, just abstaining from meeting together for a while. You can't buy or sell things unless you wear that thing. Is that really our line? Is, darn right it is. It is worth us spending our social capital here and now because there's nothing after the church but your house. It's part of a much bigger and more significant battle. And I do believe that Christians all throughout the world are waking up to this, particularly in the West, in our country. 
And do you know what, you know what happens at a time like this? People on those battle lines, there are two distinct lines. If you don't see that, there are two distinct lines. And there are many people, even on our side of the culture war, who aren't Christian. And they're looking around. They're like, why, why am I with all these Christians? Why am I backed up to the church? Why is it that the church is standing? Am, am I with them? And people are going to have to start realizing it's not just because it makes sense to me because that's what the other side says. We do it because we have the word of God. We know what he says and it tells us what kings should do and should not do. And it tells us what we should do and not do. I am so eager to preach for you how it is that we are to resist. And it doesn't look like it shows in the movies. It's so much purer than that. And it's so much more powerful than that. And we will certainly win. And we have a responsibility now as Christians to say, this is where we stand. You cannot make us do what this forbids. And we will do what this commands. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I am very exercised by the events of the world and maybe more so than I ought to be and as I stand in a pulpit preaching the word. Lord, I do believe that throughout history, faithful brothers and sisters have held your word. It's so authoritative. Seeing you as so faithful and true, even when they looked like bigots in the eyes of the world, when they looked like hopeless, uneducated rubes. But Father, we care not what the world says about us. We care what you say. We care what you say about life. We care what you say about justice. We care about what you say about the law. And we will abide by what you say up to death. Father, help us. Help us to think rightly about these things. Help us to be eager to seek peace with all as you have commanded for us to do. Help us to even love our enemies. But Lord, help expose for us the lies of this world. Help us to to not be like that frog in the kettle that for decades we've just sat and watched things happen. Help us to be a kind of people that refuse to believe even one, one iota of a lie. Help us to run every single thing we hear through your word, that we would be protected, we'd be defended from the lies of this world. Father, help us to speak into the lies of this world truth. Help us to speak and proclaim the gospel. Help us care more about eternal life for those whom we love and are lost than we care about our own earthly freedoms. Father, help us to not have rebellion in our hearts stoked, but help us to have a desire to submit to you, come alive in our hearts. Lord, there needs to be much repentance in the church, sin that's entered into our homes, sin that's entered into our hearts. We have not given your word its due. We have not given you the worship that you are due. We have looked at other things as though they may be worthy of worship, the creature rather than the creator. Father, forgive us of our folly. Help us to shut off the Netflix. Help us to shut off the movies. Help us to shut down the outside voices that are riddled with lies and become so familiar with truth that we have no taste for deceit. Help us to proclaim that truth. And lead us into glory, Lord, that we may give you worship for eternity with all this sinful wickedness behind us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.